0: BIMP mm-hmm. Welcome to episode 47 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Scott, today we'll be aiming for the head as we discuss Jim Jarmusch's new zombie comedy, The Dead Don't Die. But first, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Scott. The summer is off to a great start. I, You know, I probably spent every weekend in Boston for a good couple-month period of time. And, you know, in the last couple, month and a half, two months, I've been getting to get out, get out of Boston a little bit. Uh, see some different parts, see some different people I hadn't seen for a while from college and feeling just really refreshed from all that. So uh, now back ready for the grind of talking about movies. Not that it's really a grind, but uh, yeah, excited about talking about this movie today. For The first one, I will say just to give a little bit of a tease, probably the first movie in a while where we've had really divergent opinions about.
0: Yeah, we'll see. Um, I, yeah, I think there definitely will be some uh, some divisiveness in our discussion, but you know, we're all friends here at the end of the day.
1: Oh, absolutely. No, I was I mean, I was talking to a couple of people that I was visiting this weekend, I went back to uh, where I went to college, where one of my close friends is has worked the last year, and uh, are talking about our podcast. And then that, you know, talking about with them how we really do have pretty similar opinions about a lot of movies. I mean, you could say that maybe we disagreed a little bit on under the silver lake earlier this year because you rated Mm -hmm. it so highly i mean i was still positive on it but not as positive as you whereas this one i feel like you're gonna be positive i'm gonna be a little bit more negative it will just be i think it'll be a really fun discussion today
0: yeah, I, d- I definitely think, and I definitely think there are some similarities, too, between this movie and between Under the Silver Lake in terms of ways to interpret it. But we'll get into that in just a second. But, Scott, the, f- the biggest uh, release this week was, of course, Men in Black International, but uh, critics' reviews and box office results seem to have declared the MIB franchise dead. So with that in mind, we decided to turn our attention this week not to the dead, but to the undead. In The Dead Don't Die, the new ZOMCOM from well-known indie director Jim Jarmusch, the quaint Midwestern town of Centerville, USA, finds itself overrun by zombies after an environmental disaster causes the Earth's axis to tilt. With With the town plunged into crisis, Jarmusch introduces us to a host of locals who are trying to cope with the zombie apocalypse in their own way. They include a trio of police officers, played by Bill Murray, Adam Driver, and Chloe Sevigny, all of whom have different viewpoints on the outbreak, a gun-toting alt-right farmer, played by Steve Buscemi, a katana-wielding Irish funeral home director, played by Tilda Swinton, a nerdy convenience store owner, played by Caleb Landry Jones, and a scraggly hermit living on the outskirts of town, played by Tom Waits. Scott, with an all-star cast and more than a little political commentary at its heart, The Dead Don't Die has its sights firmly on being one of this year's indie smashes. Did it land some shots to your head? Or is it a brainless spectacle needing to be put out of its misery?
1: Yeah, I think that it's neither. I uh, I don't, I mean, it landed, a, it landed a couple shots. I don't think it landed as many shots as it probably wanted to on me. That being said, I don't think this movie is a total dud. The, I think the core problem that I can boil down for this movie is that even though it's, you know, modest runtime, I think it was only about 100 minutes. I just thought this movie, I know I'm sounding... I'm sounding really uh, like like you today, but this movie just felt really long, and I think that a part of that feeling isn't necessarily about the fact that, oh, 100 minutes is a long time. This one, I just felt like it was so repetitive uh, in some of the jokes that it went to. It had some plot lines which were just left open, uh, and one that we'll talk about more is there's this one particular plot line with some children that I just thought was left completely hanging, and when I left the movie, my first thought was, well, we could have just gotten rid of every one of those scenes, and I would you know, feel the same uh, about the film or about the tightness of the plot. And so in in that sense, when I say that it's repetitive, what I mean is that the first time it, you know, sends its message, whether, whether that be, you know, in the narrative, it's political commentary or the jokes that it's making, they land and they make me laugh. They have a good effect. I think that they're thoughtful. But by the end of the hundred minutes, I think the biggest problem is that I just felt like the movie had said its message maybe in the first half hour and there wasn't that much to be added by the you know rest of the movie. Of course, there are some exceptions that I'm making some broad generalizations and uh, about about the film. And there are little bits that get added on, but I think that this movie accomplishes eighty percent of its message in the first half hour, the first forty minutes, you know, first half of the movie at you know at the very most. With that being said, I think the cast is quite good. I mean, Bill Murray is you know very solid. I think Adam Driver. Is particularly good. Tilda Swinton, very good and, and uh, very eccentric as her character, Zelda Winston. Mm-hmm. Chloe Savini is someone who I thought really underwhelmed in this movie. I found her character quite annoying, actually, at times. I mean, again, she was kind of funny for that, for the first couple of scenes that you get of her, but you know by the 45 minute mark I was just like I don't know if I want to see this character anymore I I thought not that her chemistry was poor with the other two characters that she was kind of partnered with uh in Bill Murray and Adam Driver but just that I think the the particular character just graded against my against my, uh, my sensibilities and my personality maybe I'm not sure Caleb Landry Jones and Danny Glover I thought were both good And so I think overall what I found was that the movie itself felt like Jim Jarmusch was trying to be trying to be clever when you know some of his commentary or some of his recurring themes just felt a little bit over like overutilized in some way, which is a kind of a weird thing to say I think I haven't really felt this way about a movie but just felt really repetitive felt really redundant almost at points in the movie and it wasn't you know, a, a matter of narrative precision to kind of hammer home the point he was trying to make. It was, oh, I made this point early in the movie, and, you know, now I'm going to just hammer it home by bludgeoning you with it, not from not from a impactful sense, but from a, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you thought I, w- I was so dumb to not understand the point you were trying to make before. And so it, that kind of wore my patience thin, but the performances were overall fairly strong. The humor was good at first, but then felt again, repetitive and and redundant and leaning into some of the jokes that maybe worked well in the first few times they were made, but uh, you know, felt old by the, by the end of the movie and felt um, kind of easy to go back to, so to speak. But I think those are my high level takes, but I know that you uh, liked this movie and at least were more high on this movie than I was. So I'd love to hear your thoughts now.
0: Yeah. You know, Scott, I said that this movie had some similarities to under the silver lake just a couple minutes ago. And I think, what I was getting at with that is that, first of all, I think this is a movie where the director really swings for the fences um, with a lot of things that he tries with With really generally what he's trying to accomplish here. Uh, maybe it's not as quite as ambitious as Under the Silver Lake was, uh, to be sure, but I think uh, there's a lot of points he's trying to make here and a lot of different characters that he's using to make these points. And then the other thing which I think it shares with DRM's movie is that it's one of those uh, movies where the a lot of the criticisms that I've seen from critics, and I mean, possibly from some of the things that you've just mentioned, I want to know a little bit more, maybe when we get into spoilers, like what some of the jokes were and stuff that you felt were a little bit repetitive. But it's one of those things where you you look at the critiques and I think to a certain extent you could say, well, that's the point, right? Like that goes towards the commentary that the movie is trying to make. And so I think it's difficult when you're, reviewing a movie like this to decide, especially because this is my first movie that I've seen of Jim Jarmusch's, how, how often do you want to give the benefit of the doubt to the director that, oh, you know, this was intentional, um, this thing which maybe could be perceived as a flaw was actually intentional going towards the commentary? Or, you know, or, or on the other hand, do you want to point out all the flaws and say, well, this is a failure by the director? And I think that there are examples of both in this movie um, I think that there are some times where what may be perceived as a flaw actually plays into the commentary in a more subtle way. And then I also think that there are some times when the point that Jarmish uh, is trying to make is very heavy handed um, and doesn't come off very well for, to its audience. However, I think that those moments are few and far between, to be honest. And some of the cr- criticisms that I've seen of particular moments one scene one i I don't even want to call it a scene because honestly this is the point I'm trying to make that the the parts that people I've seen criticized a lot in this movie are really very 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 minute and very infinitesimally small parts of the movie like the the part one part which I've seen criticized a lot is maybe fifteen to twenty seconds of the movie, and I think that you know I feel like I've been making this comment with the movies a lot recently, but it's a little lazy by some critics, I feel like, to point to this moment um, and say, well, look, you know, Jim Jarmusch is being really cringy and heavy handed. And yeah, I agree with um, the point that they're trying to make in this particular scene. I think he is. But that doesn't speak for the whole movie or that doesn't even speak for the rest of what's going on in that scene even. And so I think that uh, it a lot of times maybe it's critics who go in and they're looking for a reason to discount this movie, Um, you know, I don't want to accuse any critics of anything, but I feel like uh, that's the reaction I get sometimes when I'm reading some of these reviews that I'm like, okay, yeah, but you also have this whole other movie. And I think that for every time that Jarmish, you know, maybe makes a misstep with his commentary, there are two or three moments that actually work really well and are very on point. And I think that, you know, as big as this cast of characters is, I think that it is big for a reason and that one of the things which really intrigued me about the movie is that every character sort of occupies their own unique role in the commentary of the movie. And, uh, you know, to, to be more literal about it in American society, uh, which is obviously something that this movie uh, is critiquing. Uh, And so I think that Jarmusch does a really nice job with balancing his huge cast here and making every character you know feel important to the movie and you know you point you you mentioned the subplot about the kids I think yeah we'll talk about that I, I definitely think it's left a little bit too open but I still think that those kids play an important part in the movie and Jarmish definitely had a vision for these characters I don't know how well he follows through with that but again we'll get into that a little bit later but yeah, I think that a lot of the jokes work. I think that the repetition of some of the jokes in, in some moments is kind of the point. Um, again, it's it's we're dancing around spoilers here just because there's so many different topics to, to touch on when we get into that uh, plot and the you know the political commentary behind this movie. But I agree that I think the cast is really strong, uh, and I think yeah the the standouts that you pointed to, Adam Driver and Tilda Swinton, I think they're also my MVPs here. You know, not to take anything away from anybody, because I think that everybody's really strong. And I do disagree with your point about Chloe Seveny. And again, we'll we'll get to that when we talk about the supporting cast here. But I think that there's a reason why you are finding the character annoying uh, and it's intentional and it's part of the performance that Chloe Sevigny is giving, which I think is actually pretty good. Um, so I feel like, uh, I have said all that I can really say at a general level about this movie, but yeah, like you said, I really did enjoy it. I think that it has flaws, but again, because of what the director is trying, because he really swings for the fences, there's naturally going to be flaws, but it's a more interesting movie because it has the flaws and the times that it works, which it works more often than it, than it missteps. In my opinion, it works really well. And I think is really perceptive about the sort of lethargy that is going on today with our viewpoint on the Trump presidency broadly. And more specifically, I think climate change is something which plays a huge role in this movie um, and is, is you know very important to the commentary that they're trying to make here. And I think that it makes very salient points about each in a way that most of the time was not heavy handed and really challenged its audience to look behind the you know, generic what what's going on, the horror trappings, generic horror trappings that are going on here with the zombies um because I think that any good movie like this, any good zombie or creature feature is gonna have something more behind it, like that's you know they the George Romero gets a shout out in this movie, and that's what George Romero was most known for doing with his zombie movies is yeah, they were really good zombie movies, but also they had you know political commentary behind them, the right dawn of the dead, of course, set in a shopping mall not just because it's a cool place to set a zombie movie, but but because he was making critiques about consumerism. Um, So I think that, you know, if you're going to succeed in this genre, you got to have something more going on there. And I think there's certainly more going on there. Um, And with that, I think we should just probably move on, unless you have some uh, some other takes on what I've said there, Scott.
1: I think, yeah, no, I think we're probably good to move on. But just to respond to one of the things that came up a couple times is that – I think it's fine to say that maybe the repetition on some things or like the a performance that didn't sit, did like that I didn't like very much or didn't agree with me very well. I think that's all fine that you can say that was intentional, but I don't think that just because it was intentional makes makes it good. I don't think that the, you know, even if his point was to continue to return over and over to to like the same jokes or the same themes or bludgeon you with the same themes or have this character come off as really annoying. I, I mean, I think that you could say maybe that was the point, but if the point was to create something that I didn't very much, uh, like appreciate watching and I, I don't want to use the word enjoy because you're not supposed to enjoy everything. I understand that. But like if, if it's not something that I feel like I can appreciate for what it is, um, that I, I don't know if you've, if like he has succeeded in making something that is good just because it was intentional. I think that there are plenty of intentional choices that directors and filmmakers, make all the time that are wrong (laughs) like they shouldn't like don't like don't make it a better movie and i i do think that even if it was the point i mean again that can be intentional i also think that that doesn't necessarily mean it makes for a good movie i don't mean i don't mean to say that the movie isn't good i think we'll get into that in, in a deeper nuanced discussion but i know that this is also a discussion that we have with under the silver lake and to make a comparison, I think that as interesting as Under the Silver Lake was, and I will just go ahead and say, I think Under the Silver Lake is a better movie than this, or at least a more interesting one. That, But I didn't necessarily enjoy watching Under the Silver Lake. And again, that's not to say that you have to enjoy everything that is, you don't have to enjoy something for it to be good. But at the same time, if I don't think you have to make a sacrifice of making something enjoyable to experience for, you know, for the sake of the point you're making, right? Like, I just think that that for me, so many things were so thin by the end of the movie or felt unfinished or unpolished that even if that was the point, there was too much of it for me to, you know, walk out of the movie thinking, wow, I really liked that.
0: Yeah, and, if that makes sense. and I think that's what I'm getting at with uh, what I said at the start of the review, you know, kind of that it's difficult to know sometimes, you know, at what in what places do we want to give the director credit for you know, making a point for, you know, making a point that we appreciate. And, you know, when at what point do we want to say, hey, you know, maybe this isn't making for the greatest viewing experience, even if you are making a point here. Um, And again, I think there are maybe moments of uh, both that are going on here. But with that, why don't we move into more specifics on this movie? Um, And yeah, let's do it. Let's start with that um, all star cast, Scott. And let's talk. Let's start with that. Um, those two names at the top of the bill, Bill Murray and Adam Driver here as the sort of mismatched cops, I think for me representing the older and younger generations here quite clearly. Um, But what did you think about the performances of them on their own and then how they interacted together?
1: Yeah. As I've stated already, I think that these performances are really good i think they're you know these are the two lead performances in the film and they are worthy leads adam driver probably outshines bill murray but i think both do a really good job obviously both are tasked with giving a very deadpan delivery in their performance particularly bill murray and you know maybe bill murray's deadpan delivery trumps adam drivers in that sense but their chemistry works well enough i think that the tension that it that comes to light between the two characters over the course of the movie, I think was quite funny and really felt like it was a good, you know, narrative point in the movie if you're talking about, you know, a theme of the younger and the older generation and how they interact, how they, you know, develop and play off of each other. I think that's one of the things that's done in a more subtle way over time and something that I really appreciated and thought to I mean to avoid spoilers, but I thought that their characters like collective arc over the course of the film was one of the things that was really strong about this film. And so I really can't uh, praise these performances enough in the context of this movie.
0: Yeah, I think they're both really strong. You know, Bill Murray, obviously the king of deadpan humor, you know, he's done all kinds of comedy over his many years in the film world. But I think that, you know, what he's really made his name off of movies like Ghostbusters and Groundhog Day um, is this, Deadpan delivery that we see uh, on display here, and he delivers the lines really well. Uh, and, you know, he's delivering them obviously in a very dry fashion, uh, but he's still able to make them humorous. And I think he does he does well with uh, his facial expressions, his nonverbal uh, communication, as well here too. I uh, particularly like the scene where they are at the diner and they've discovered the you know the initial massacre sort of that happens when a couple of people are killed inside the diner by the zombies and. Bill Murray walks in to survey the scene and just his facial reaction when he sees the scene or really lack thereof and then walks straight back outside um, made me crack up. So I think he's great. And I think Adam Driver is great as well. I think that his character is really interesting because, you know, I talked up top about how I think every character occupies a unique role in this movie. And I think that the movie is saying something about every single character but I think Adam Driver's character is maybe the most complex in terms of what what is the movie trying to say about this character or, you know, more broadly, what this character represents, because on the one hand, he is, you know, quote unquote woke. Right. He he drives around a smart car, um, which is provides some laughs uh, in that diner scene as well. And, you know, he in the in another scene, you know, the Selena Gomez scene, he talks about how much he loves Mexico and Mexican people. Um, And he's clearly meant to, you know, resemble some sort of maybe exaggerated sort of woke millennial stereotype. But at the same time, I don't know that the movie is lionizing him. Right. Like, I don't know that we're supposed to see him as one of the quote unquote heroes in this movie, Um, especially in a scene that happens towards the end, you know, you talked about up top, how you felt like the movie made a lot of its points in the first half hour. I think there's a scene toward the end with the two of them in the car that was really necessary to me in cementing maybe where I come down ultimately uh, on this Adam driver character. And we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get into the plot. But I think that his character for those reasons is really interesting because, you know, it's hard to know where this character exactly fits in on the overall sort of good versus bad spectrum to, you know, to be really overly simplistic about it. You know, like who are the people that we're supposed to listen to here? Who are the people we're supposed to trust and who are the people who need to change their worldview?
1: Yeah. Now I think that you're absolutely right. And to go back to that point about there's an important scene, you know, for these, for this character towards the end of the movie between him and Bill Murray. And I agree. I think that's probably one of the one exceptions To what I was saying, you know, in my early high level views. And that's because there is this scene in the, you know, the patrol car towards the end of the film where these two are, you know, have a real back and forth with each other that was really great. Like that was one of my favorite scenes in the movie because you finally get something, you know, other than deadpan out of Bill Murray, really. And I think that 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 kind of snap, that kind of change in uh, temperament really added so much after, you know, 90 minutes of kind of the same, from particularly from Bill Murray's uh, char- character here. And that sort of dynamic between the two characters changing a little bit really added a lot for me. And then kind of, again, overall about Adam Driver's character, you're talking about him being, not, not trying to necessarily lionize this character. And I think that's right. And I think this movie, with all of its characters, probably tries not to portray one way or the other. I mean, I think most characters do lean one way or the other, but it's hard to say that one particular character comes down all the way on one side of the fence. Right. And so,
0: which is a good movie.
1: No, totally. Yeah. (laughs) Because you talk about it being him being woke or whatever, or this movie trying to portray him as, you know, being kind of that, you know, the stereotypical woke millennial, but then you have a scene like that where he talks about how he just loves, you know, Mexico and Mexican people. And, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that someone who like is trying to be really woke, but isn't really woke at all would say. And so I I think that that's, you, you, you get a little bit of both sides. There and i think that's i mean i can't imagine that is anything but intentional from from jarmish and i think that 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 adds a layer of uh nuance and complexity that you know maybe some of the other characters were lacking or at least maybe that's a bad way to frame it but kind of lifts this particular character up in the in in my mind in terms of interest and you know how interesting it was and how nuanced it was compared to you know Someone like Tilda Swinton, who I'm sure we're about to start talking about, who, as interesting as the performance was, I don't know if that character is nearly as interesting as someone like, you know, uh, Ronnie, who is Adam Driver's character.
0: Yeah. And I think another moment where we see sort of the hypocrisy you're talking about there is like, I talked about how he drives a smart car. But at the same time, during that hotel scene where he uh, meets Selena Gomez and her uh, friends, you know, he's complimenting her on her old fashioned 68. 68- or whatever the car is that she drives, um, which is like a obvious gas guzzler, right? And in fact, we even see it uh, have to stop and fill up for gas earlier in the movie. Um, so on the one hand, you know, while he is coming off as, uh, well, he, he could come off as environmentally conscious because he's driving the smart car around. It seems more like he's sort of virtue signaling because he's at the same time, he's also talking about how cool this gas-guzzling car is. I think it's just another small moment that I appreciate.
1: Totally. Millennials love Virtue Signaling.
0: (laughs) It's very true. Uh, Okay, well, let's talk about the supporting cast now. We've talked about a lot of them, um, Scott, and I think there are some interesting uh, names in this cast. You know, we have more established actors um, like Tilda Swinton and Danny Glover, but we also have people like uh, Iggy Pop and Selena Gomez and... Um, Riza, White's uh, making appearances in the cast. So, what did you think about this very eclectic cast um, that Jarmusch has assembled? And you know, I guess a better question maybe: Who are the standouts here? Because there are so many.
1: Yeah, there there are a few um, that that stand out. I think Tilda Swinton is one of them in terms of her performance, you know, I mentioned just now that it's a, such a strong performance and the character of course stands out. Like if you see this movie, you'll remember this character for sure, whether or not this character is ultimately interesting. I think is maybe another conversation, uh, but de- definitely a, a strong uh, performance, if not eccentric from, from Tilda Swinton. And then, you know, on, in the rest of the cast, you have, you know, someone like a Caleb Landry Jones, who, I believe we've talked about on the podcast before as being someone who we both like. I think he gives another uh, good performance here, a, a pretty small role. Danny Glover, classic, you know, classic actor, still still strong here in my opinion. I think it, it's hard to go wrong with with Danny Glover, and again shows that he still has it. I wasn't the biggest fan of Chloe Sevigny, and it sounds like she's probably someone worth talking about here. Tom Waits, I think, is probably a, a interesting character more of, more so the character than the performance. Uh, Selena Gomez really for me just felt just like a really weird character. You you start to get into like the dimensions of, um, you know, really like lacking nuance just because there's not enough time to explore the character. Right. So that, you know, her whole trio of people that, you know, she's that make up the, her, her car. I don't, I didn't find them particularly interesting. They felt very one note and you know, maybe you get a couple laughs out of the exchanges she has with Ronnie or, you know, the, the motel owner you know regardless I think that it's uh it's a such a strong ensemble cast that it's hard to complain too much about some of these performances that didn't necessarily you know do it for me but that's less because of the performances and I think probably more from the lack of time to explore some of these characters who you know you get a taste of you know whether it's someone like a Selena Gomez's character and then they're gone or just not enough time to, again, fully develop the character or the performance on screen to my liking.
0: Yeah, so I first of all, I think that Caleb Landry Jones, yes, we have definitely mentioned him before. I think he's establishing himself as a really, really strong character actor, um, showing up in things. like He's one of those actors, you look at his IMDb page, and I think you'd be surprised at how many movies he's been in, just because he's one of those kind of chameleonic actors who really just disappears into, you know, Usually small supporting roles um, in some big movies. I mean, he was in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Right? He was in Get Out. He was in The Florida Project. Um, some big Oscar-winning movies um, that he's popped up in, and I think he does a good job here as this uh, very dorky um, convenience store owner. I also love Tilda Swinton's performance. She's probably the ultimate MVP for me. I think that what, we'll talk about maybe some of the commentary with this character, but I think that. On a broader level, she's very funny in this role um, because of the eccentricity that you're talking about. You know, she she calls everyone by their full name, which is really funny. And uh, I love when she's walking, even when she's walking. Right, she like walks in these perfectly straight lines, and like her turns are like smooth, and like it, it doesn't look like how a natural person walks at all. It looks like how a robot is walking. And uh, maybe we get some explanation for why she's like that at the end of the movie. Um, but I think that. Uh, she does a really good job. Uh, and a lot, you know, a lot of the movie's best laughs come from this character. And looking elsewhere, I guess we'll talk about Chloe Seveny here. I think that, you know, what you're responding to with her performance as being annoying is that she's the only character in this movie who really acts like a real person, right? She is the stand in for your classic, like, horror movie damsel in distress, I guess, this scream queen, right? Because everyone else is reacting to this zombie apocalypse in a very deadpan way. Whereas she's the one who's like legitimately freaking out and reacting how you would expect a normal person to react. So I think maybe because her performance is so off with the tone of the movie, um, that's why maybe it comes off as grating or annoying because she's at such a different level from everyone else. Um, But I think it works. Right. Because she is the person who is crying wolf here. Right. She's she is freaking out about something that she should be freaking out about. uh, But everyone kind of ignores her. Everyone kind of um, just plays it off and doesn't understand why she's overreacting until it's really too late. Um, And I think that really gets at the heart of one of the central things that the movie is trying to say. So I thought the performance really worked.
1: Uh, Yeah, I do hear what you're saying there. And I think that it's a good point about how she's the only person reacting normally. I think the problem is, is that, you know, maybe she is acting normally in certain parts of the movie. But I don't think it's normal for her to do what she did at the end of this film. Uh, Personally, I know I don't know if we want to go ahead and jump into spoilers to talk about that. But I don't think that's a like a normal like the first part of what happens is a normal way to respond. But then I don't find the second part of what happens to be a normal response. And so it's weird at times that she's acting maybe more normal than these people, or I should say, I'm going to say it this way. She's acting not deadpan, but the thing is, I'm not sure she's acting normal either because I think what Jarmish has done is, is created this caricature of the damsel in distress, right? That like needs to be like carried forward by the men in the movie to like get through this hard time. And you know, yes, you can say, the men don't carry her through the movie well, but I don't think that Jarmusch has like created an interesting character. And maybe she's different and off the tone of everyone else in the film, which is fine. I just don't think that what he created off the tone of the movie was something that I liked very much.
0: Yeah, I kind of I'm kind of starting to see where our opinions are sort of diverging on this movie. I think that I guess I, I'm, I am more appreciative of a lot of the points that he made, is making, and the directorial choices that he made in order to make those points. And maybe you just didn't find the points that he was making particularly interesting or the ways that he uh, makes his point particularly inventive.
1: Like, well, what's one
0: example that you're talking about? Well, there? I mean, like what, what we were just talking about. I think that I responded to the way that this character is acting very alarmist um, and again, trying to uh, warn them to what's going on, right? Like, or, or at least acting like a normal person would in the situation in terms of being freaked out and the way that the other characters react to her is just to play her off and to ignore her. And I think, again, that goes towards the commentary, the the political commentary here that's going on in the movie and I don't know if you thought it didn't go towards that, or maybe you just didn't find that it was interesting in the way that it made the point that it was trying to make about ignorance or the willful blindness of uh, a lot of people in the country.
1: Yeah. I think that I guess I do see, yeah, I see what you're saying. I think that I wouldn't necessarily call it a willful blindness, but a kind of question, like questionless acceptance of something that's just like, yep, this is what happened. Like that's normal. Um, and she's not that. So from that perspective, no, I totally hear what you're saying. And I think that there was maybe a way to do that with this character that didn't also make me feel like she was a, like a prototypical damsel in distress at the same time. Like, I think there's like a measured way to do that with like someone acting quote unquote normal that doesn't, that isn't pull, like isn't polarized to like one end of the spectrum. Of course I get it. Like you're playing off like one end of the spectrum with the other but i just don't think that he needed to go that far to to make it i guess is the point that i'm trying to say i think that the
0: but i feel like he's going so far in the other no, direction what, right that's what I'm deadpan i mean it is beyond it's beyond deadpan right like it's almost robotic and so I, I feel like to make his point he kind of has to go but i feel like far he just like
1: runs direction. into other problems when he finds himself on the other end of the spectrum but like i don't think he needs to like make bad like like reinforce bad stereotypes about women to make a point about how men are deadpan or like everyone else in the movie is deadpan like i think that i got distracted by other problems with the characters and it watered down the point he was trying to make about people about this like questionless acceptance of really incredibly strange things that are not normal
0: yeah i guess i didn't think about it you know maybe in the larger Terms of what it says about gender, but that's something that I'd be interesting to interest to consider on a rewatch because I think this is a movie which would benefit with a rewatch, right? Because there is so much going on, and I like the movie a lot, and I feel like maybe even with a rewatch, I might like it more. But who knows? I might like it less now that I um, am more attuned to some of the criticisms that a lot of people uh have made. But why don't we move ahead now to full spoilers? Talk about the plot, um, Scott. I'll just say up front, I think that. Um, to get more into what we're dancing around a little bit with the Chloe Seventy character. I think that a lot of what this movie is trying to say, um, you know, we have the Steve Buscemi character, right, who obviously sort of makes the critique about Trumpism more broadly. But I think for the most part, it's more narrowly focused on the issue of climate change, right? Because we we have... Various reports throughout the movie talking about how, oh, everything's being caused by polar fracking. The theme song of the movie, right? The Dead Don't Die, sung by Sturgill Simpson. Like, it's on the radio all the time. Everybody talks about how they love the song, except for Bill Murray's character, which I think is important. And like really in the lyrics of the song, he's kind of telling them this is what's going on, but everyone just chooses to ignore it. And and like Adam Driver's character, you know, there's this whole thing about how he repetitively says throughout the movie, you know, this is going to end badly. Things are going to end badly. And early on, we have the scene where he he says that. And then Bill Murray, like after everyone leaves, sits there and he's like, "It's things are going to end badly. What does that mean? And it really gets at like, People talking about climate change, like climate scientists and everything, could not be more clear about the effects of our behavior on the Earth, and you know what the ultimate result of what we're doing to the Earth is going to be. And yet, people try to dismiss it as you know too scientific or phony science and all this stuff. When really, what they're saying is things are going to end badly. Uh, there's no subtext there whatsoever, right? Like it's pretty pretty clear what they're talking about, uh, but people try to act like. Um, you know, it means something different than it actually does. And so I appreciated that point. Uh, and I think that's definitely one of the important things that's going on here. But Scott, what did you think about sort of the environmental critique of the movie?
1: Yeah, I thought the environmental critique was definitely an interesting one. I thought that the revelation of polar fracking was hilarious. I'm not going to lie. I thought that was pretty yeah. funny. That, but it, it, and, and as much as I laugh at that, it's also one of those things where like, you know what? If like Trump came on the TV tomorrow and talked about how we were going to start fracking on the North and the South pole for oil. I think that people would be like, sure. Yeah, that's like, that's great. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, again, it's like a situation where you have to laugh because it sounds so absurd, but then you think about it and I'm like, well, if someone came out and said that, like, sure. The climate's going to be like, no, 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 don't do that. People would just be like, oh, they don't know that. It's, it's so, I think it's so, it gets so to the point of the, the movie is trying to make about its political commentary and i think from that sense like the the higher level or at least this portion <clears throat> of the political commentary of the client science, i think is, a- is actually really well done it's it's one of my preferred themes of this movie and is really interesting
0: and i think that you know what you're talking about too the reactions of the people around like feel very authentic right to how people react nowadays like i think it's telling that the older generation of people right like the Danny Glover character, the, um, waitress in the diner, right. When they hear about the the fracking stuff on the radio, they just kind of shake their hands and then shake their heads and then turn the station. Right. And Bill Murray, you know, freaks out towards the end of the movie when Adam driver keeps playing the song and like throws the CD out the window of his car. Um, so I definitely think he's, he's making a point about how particularly here the older generation, but everyone is not, uh, you know, most people are guilty as well. The way that, you know, we, even the people who appreciate what is going on, who maybe uh, understand the underlying truth that climate scientists are warning us about, they don't really do anything about it. Right. They're just like, "Huh, that's too bad. And then just move on with their lives.
1: Yeah. It's just a, it, it seems like it's a reality that everyone has, you know, just come to terms with or decided to live with or what, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. You talked at the top about how, it's a commentary of the Trump administration and people do become, I don't know if apathetic is the right word over time, but like accepting that this is like this sad reality is something that we just have to live with for this period of time. And so I think it's really interesting, uh, this particular commentary. And you talked about the how the dead don't die song you know, playing in the car repeatedly. That was actually one of the things that I, I didn't actually, I think like, I thought was a, a, both a joke and a theme that was leaned too hard on. I think that it made, as much as I did appreciate, you know, that moment at the end of the movie where Bill Murray throws this, I guess it isn't at the end of the movie actually, but like a, a deeper end of the movie where Bill Murray, mm-hmm. you know, rips the CD out of the, out of the CD player and throws it out the window. And, you know, just kind of yells about the stupid song. As much as I do like that moment, I just feel like the song and its, you know, prevalence throughout the movie felt like it was one of those things that probably overplayed itself two or three too many times. And maybe you're about to tell me that that is the point. But also at the same time, I think that it it didn't need to be to get the point across.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would say that is the point, but I think that we need it right to get that Bill Murray scene of him freaking out because I think like it comes at an important place in the movie too. Right. Like right when they're in the thick of the zombie outbreak. And I think what we see towards the end of the movie is that Bill Murray's character is finally starts to realize, right. That, Oh, we were warned about this all along. We should have done something about this a lot earlier. And so I think when he hears the song, right, like that realization is triggered inside of him and it turns into this anger and frustration about the fact that, he couldn't uh, prevent what was going on because, you know, they just kind of ignored it and went on with their lives. And now it's too late. Right. Because the zombies are overrunning anything, everything. So, yeah, maybe we hear the song a lot throughout the movie. But I think we need to hear it a lot to get to that scene where Bill Murray finally realizes that, hey, we were hearing this song the entire time throughout the movie. Right. Um, and yet nobody really did it. I think
1: that's true to a degree. I think that we hear it many times outside of the presence of Bill Murray, though. Like I'm thinking of like in the car with Selena Gomez and the other two characters with her. Like, but, th- but they also had like a similar joke about the song or a recurring gag with the song that felt out of the context of the point being made with Bill Murray's character. And maybe that's the effect of it. It needs to wear on us as well to like empathize with Bill Murray's position. I don't know. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I don't think I agree with that, though. And so I think that it was an overused joke in the movie about this song being played and everyone being a fan. This particular artist who was also made a cameo in the movie with, you know, one of the zombies. It was it is what it is, right? Like I it just didn't work for me, even though I appreciated that culminating moment where Bill Murray does get upset with the song. I just think that it could have been limited to Bill Murray's arc.
0: Yeah, uh, I I think that the the Selena Gomez stuff is a little bit weird as well. But to pivot sort of to a different point, I think that um, another thing that's interesting here about the commentary is uh, to, to broaden things right and and talk a little bit more about what it's saying about Trumpism in general. I think that we have sort of three subplots um, of these characters who are sort of on the fringes of society, right? The outsiders. So we have Tilda Swinton's character who is the foreigner. Um, And people talk about early in the movie in the diner scene um, about how she's strange and foreign and, you know, they kind of want to stay away from her. We have the children, right, who are in sort of the I guess it's like a juvenile correction facility. I'm not exactly sure what it is, uh, but that's kind of what it seems like. Um, And then we also have uh, Tom Waits as the hermit, right, who's this guy who's basically been exiled to the outskirts and he's living in the woods and everybody refers to him as Hermit Bob. And he's being accused of stealing the chickens um, that Farmer Miller has. Uh, and I think that we have, you know, we have three distinct groups represented there, right? We have like immigrants slash foreign people. We have, um, children and we have the homeless. And I think that it's telling that, right. These are the three groups of people. These three people are the ones who know what's going on and are, who are talking, are talking throughout the entire movie about the fact that this is what's going to happen. That not necessarily that the zombies are coming, but that we are headed down uh, a dangerous path. And they're, they're making this point throughout the movie. of course, everyone is ignoring them, right? And I think this is maybe where the title of the movie even comes in because we have the people who are the ones that society has identified, who, who are basically dead to society, right? Um, they're on the fringes of society and people just basically ignore them. But at the end of the movie, right, who are the people that survive the zombie apocalypse? Tom Waits survives. The kids survive, as far as we know. Tilda Swinton is taken up into her alien spaceship, so she survives. Right? So technically speaking, the dead don't die, right, um, if we want to look at it at a really metaphorical level. Um, and so I think he's definitely making a point there, right, about the people that um, we choose to put on the fringes of society. Maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to these people.
1: I think my biggest problem with all this is that like I don't I don't feel that that story tells itself as well with the children. I think that that subplot is like I mean you have I think it's not just about being children, I think it's about being like black I think it's children of color.
0: And to jump in too, I think there's almost like a sort of LGBT thing vaguely going on towards the beginning of this because we have the fact that the one boy, Geronimo, keeps sure. hanging out in the girls' area. And that first scene, you know, we see the kids and he's ta- he's being taken back to the boys' area. And we keep hearing the like the, the actors who play the security guards in this scene are being very deliberate about the way that they're like, can't be in the girls' area. you got to go back to the boys' area. Come on, they're going to take you back to the boys' area now. So I think it's maybe something they could have developed a little bit better, but I think, you introduce that into the the equation as well as the race racial element that you're talking.
1: About. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. And I think, but one thing that you said right there is that maybe they could have done a little bit more to develop yeah. it. I think is pretty much this, you know, the story of this arc in my mind, I think that this movie would have been tighter and better without it the way in its current state. But, you know, maybe if they took 10 more minutes to flesh out this particular arc or integrate them some other way, into the movie beyond just, you know, being in the same town as everyone else. I think that maybe then you could have gotten something out of it. But honestly, to me, it just felt by the end of the movie, as engaged as I was in these scenes, each time they came up, because I thought it was, they were going to do something interesting with it. Ultimately, I don't think they did anything interesting with it. And so, yes, it seems like they survived. It currently, it certainly is that cliffhanger ending, but it did feel unfinished. Like I think parts of this movie feel really unfinished. And in another I think another version of that feeling slightly unfinished is the culmination of Tilda Swinton's arc. You mentioned that she's taken up to an alien spaceship. Was she an alien the whole time? Was she someone who just survives the apocalypse by jumping on an alien spaceship? I mean, who knows? We don't know the answer to that question. We don't have to know the answer to that question. I think it's fine not having the answer to that question. But my problem is, is it just felt like a really lazy way to end her arc as a character that they had spent a little bit more time developing. And to me, this culmination of her arc was really just like kind of a WTF moment. Cause for me, yes, the metaphor about her being an alien in terms of her being an immigrant, her being a foreigner, I get it. if, If that's the reference they're trying to make, that's like so on the nose. I mean, to me that just feels like it's so obvious what they're doing the entire time. Like I don't need an on the nose, like pun about her being taken off in an alien spaceship to get that. And if it's something beyond that, then it just feels like a weird ending to the story because it's an interesting character, or at least the, the way they frame the character in an interesting way. And then it just feels like a super lazy or unthoughtful way to finish the arc, unless you're just being super on the nose, in which case I don't find it to be that clever. So for me, two of these three stories, I just feel like don't wrap themselves up very well or like really give themselves a good showing at the end of it. And I think that speaks to this like a kind of larger feeling that I have about the film of it having a lot of good ideas in that first half of the movie again, broadly speaking, making some generalizations. And the second half of the movie, Jarmish, like not being really sure how to wrap up those ideas or just getting kind of lazy and not finishing it. And so for me, as much as I do act, I do really agree with the points you're making about it's these people who are kind of ostracized or on the outskirts of society that we don't think about or we don't pay attention to. And they ultimately are the ones who are able to survive what's happening it's also i think a weird juxtaposition where you have someone like bill murray or an adam driver's character at the end of the movie kind of standing up to try to make things better and stop this and you know taking on a role of trying to protect other people that i find an interesting juxtaposition if jarmusch is saying these people on the outskirts of society who don't stand up for others are the ones who survive what does that really say again i know i think there's a lot of complex interweaving of narrative arcs about these characters, because it's not trying to lionize one way or the other. I think any, if not all of these characters, but to me, I just think it's an interesting juxtaposition that I don't really know how it ultimately shakes out there. And I don't know if that, and I think that might've been unintentional or maybe something that he didn't think about, but I don't know if you think differently.
0: Yeah. So a few points, first of all, to, to talk about that, I think that right that last part of the movie where they're fighting off the zombies, I think that's like Jarmish's call to action to us, the viewer, right? Because I think that there's a line right before they get out of the car to go fight the zombies. Because, because first of all, right, they've realized what's going on at this point. They have finally realized, oh, hey, we screwed up. We should have known about this all along. And actually, Adam Driver's character did know about it all along. And th- this is one of the things where I where I think the character is a little bit more complex in terms of you know, where he falls on that uh, broad spectrum of about good versus evil character, you know, um, to oversimplify it again. I think that, yes, like these people on the fringes of society, he knows what's going to happen the whole time. But the only reason that he knows, right, is because they break the fourth wall and, and he's been given the script to the movie, right? So the only reason he knows is because the outcome has already been determined, right? And there's nothing he can do to change it at this point but he knows what's going to happen. So I think that's where his character is a little bit different from these other characters who we're supposed to see as, hey, they knew what was going on the whole time. But then, so they've come to the realization, right? They've had sort of their redemptive moment or at least the closest thing that they get to a redemptive moment in this movie. And then Adam Driver says, well, we got to give it our best shot. Um, And Bill Murray's like, but it's going to end badly. And Adam Driver's like, yeah. And I think right there, that's the thesis of the movie, right? It's going to end badly, like probably where we are right now in terms of the environment and the deterioration of the planet. I don't know if there's a positive outcome looking ahead to the future, but we have to give it our best shot. Right. And I think that's what they're doing in this final scene when they're fighting off the zombies. And ultimately, you know, it doesn't work out for them. They do die. But I think that's sort of the call to action by Jarmish to the audience to say, hey, even though we're kind of screwed, do the best you can. Right. To make this um world better for ourselves and then for, you know, the people who are gonna live for future generations. Um, so I think that's what I got out of that that final moment. And I think that actually to criticize the movie a little bit, I would have liked to see the movie end right at the moment where they get out of the car, right? Because you have that line right before they get out of the car, then they get out of the car and pump their shotguns. And I would have loved it. If the movie ended right there instead of going on for another couple of minutes. And then we get at this kind of weird Tom Waits monologue to end the movie dialing back a little bit um, to some of your other points, the Tilda Swinton thing worked fine for me in the end. I think that I don't know that it's really important that she got taken away in an alien spaceship. I think maybe that was something that was sort of played a little bit more for laughs and maybe wasn't as funny as they would have hoped. I think for me, the important thing is right that she survives um, and she's the person that has been ostracized and labeled as an immigrant and foreigner throughout the whole movie. Um, But in the end, she's the one who has given this path to survival. Um, no one else is given this passage aboard an alien spaceship in the same way that she is. So maybe there's a deeper commentary going on there, but I don't know that Jarmusch did a good enough job with that if there was. And then I agree with you about the kids. I think that it is underdeveloped, right? I think that there's definitely he's definitely trying to make the point of, hey, we need to listen to our youth and, it, and pay more attention to the youth and, it, you know in addition to the homeless and uh, the immigrants as well. But I think that he doesn't establish where these, the, the place that these characters have in this world well enough, as he does with the others, right? Like with Tilda Swinton, we have other characters talking about, oh, she's strange, you know, she runs the funeral home, blah, 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 blah. And Tom Waits, right? You know, everyone, or multiple characters throughout the movie talk about uh, this character and how he's odd and they think he's stealing the chickens and all of this stuff. And we don't sort of get that other interaction to sort of place the kids in this world. They just seem sort of in a world of their own. And I think that there isn't really a denouement to their story. So I agree that that this is one of the areas where I see the point that he was trying to make. And I think it's an interesting point, but I don't think he, d- he makes the point well enough because it is left so open-ended. So those are my takes.
1: Yeah. And I think I agree with those takes, you know, for the most part, with some exceptions. And I but I think that ultimately, this just speaks to the fact that the end of this movie is just really messy. I don't think it's I don't think it's finished or executed well in the end. Like you talk about breaking the fourth wall with and, you know, getting and learning that Adam Driver's character is privy to how everything is going to end, which is how I know it's going to end badly. Right. But there's like one of the, I think that this is like heavy handed and, and like this particular scene, although I like the idea of it and I like what it's doing with Adam driver's character. It's not executed well. Cause Bill Murray goes like, well, I was only given the scenes that I was shot in, but like he's in the last scene when he dies. Like he knows the end of the movie too. So I don't even understand like what, well, like what's going on there. Like as interesting, as I thought it was to add that nuance to Adam driver's character it feels like it kind of like fumbles Bill Murray's character there too then. And then kind of to return back to the point that I made that at the end of my, you know, the last thing that I was saying, if you're talking about the officers, if you're talking about Adam driver and Bill Murray's characters dying at the end is this call to action to do something, give it your best effort, even if it might be too late for a good outcome. What does that mean that the people who survive this film are running away or are, not kind of responding to that call to action like yes tilda swinton kills a bunch of these zombies but ultimately flees earth on this alien spaceship that you know i mean maybe it's ambiguous whether she technically survives or not maybe she's killed on the alien spaceship who knows doesn't matter but i think it's a really interesting message if you want there to be a call to action but then the people who survive are people who don't respond to the call to action are not trying to stand up but
0: you know to, to jump in They're not the people who need to change. Right. They're not the people who have ignored this problem from the beginning. They've been talking about what's going wrong the whole time. And so I think that, yeah, the people who need this call to action, the people who need to um, give it their best shot are the people who have not been giving it their best shot thus far.
1: I, but I don't think that responsibility falls solely on people who haven't been giving it their best shot so far. Like we, you still need to be held accountable to continue to do the things. And yes, you get your, maybe, maybe it's not as satisfying for those of us, for those people who have been doing it from the beginning or don't need to change, but like, you don't need to then turn your backs on these things, right? Like Tom, like, you know, Hermit Bob has a gun at the end of the day. Like he could have done something with them. He could have you know, stepped up and made his best efforts again. But no, instead, he turns his back, walks away. And on that final note there, I think that this monologue voiceover at the end of the film is the worst voiceover we've had of the year so far. I think it's horrible, horrible, horrible voiceover. Really left a bad taste in our mouth. I'm not sure if that's what you were referring to earlier about how yeah. critics are like tearing apart 30 seconds of the movie or a couple minutes of the movie and stand for And I'm not sitting here to say like this was this. This is what made the movie good or bad or, or what the movie rested on, because it's not where I, you know lay my biggest critiques but it was really bad in my opinion
0: yeah well so a couple of things like I think that you know Tom Waits turns his back but maybe that's you know they're trying to say well look you haven't treated these characters right the entire movie you haven't treated Tom Waits's character right you've you've cast him out now you need him to help and you know what you know he's not gonna he's gonna do unto others as you have done unto him um I, I just don't
1: think that's the right. Me- I mean, if that's the message, then I just disagree with it. I just don't think that that doesn't line up with my sensibilities then.
0: Okay. The, the, so the part that I was alluding to earlier is actually something that we haven't touched on and we can touch on it very briefly is so the zombies, right. We learn that they gravitate towards the thing that they loved, uh, you know, in real life, uh, before they died. So like Carol Kane talks about Chardonnay, Iggy pops going after the coffee. Um, and then we get this one like little snippet outside the convenience store for like 10 or 15 seconds of the zombies are like iPhone, Siri, Bluetooth. And yeah, it feels like your grandpa shaking his fist at you, right, for staring at your phone too much. And people have really made hay about this. Um, fifteen se- I mean, it really is like 15 seconds. And they just completely move on from that uh, right afterwards. I don't think that that feeling is really reflected elsewhere in the movie, right? I, it, it's not like this is one smaller moment of a bigger problem. I think it is the entire problem right there, and it's 15 seconds of the movie. So, yeah, I agree. It's, it's very heavy-handed and cringeworthy, and, again, feels like an old man shaking his fist on his lawn. But at the end of the day, they move on from it pretty quickly to more important points, I think.
1: Yeah, I rolled my eyes at that, but I didn't have that big of a problem with it.
0: Yeah, and the final monologue. I agree, it's not great. I would, I really would have liked it if it ended it at that earlier point. I do like the very last line of the monologue, but other than that, it's weird. And again, I, sort of another small moment of him talking about the Nintendos or whatever was kind of really random. But um, yeah, so I, there's definitely some unevenness there as well. All right, well, we've uh, we've discussed a lot of uh, of good points here. I think we've had a good. Good discussion. So I think we can definitely move into the wrap-up at this point, Scott. What was your favorite scene or moment from The Dead Don't Die? Yeah, I think there's
1: like there are a lot of really good good moments throughout this film, especially for me earlier on, before I thought that a lot of a lot of things maybe were a little bit thin. And for me, one of the one of the points that I did like the most early on was the interaction between Tilda Swinton's character and Chloe 70 70s character I think that exchange was hilarious it sums up everything that I think I liked about Tilda Swinton's performance and it also I think was a moment where I thought Chloe 70s character was more normal than the other side of you know the uh, deadpan spectrum so to speak so for me as much as that character maybe was hysterical in moments, this was a more measured scene from her. And then you got all the good parts of Tilda Swinton in it as well. And it made for a a nice impact, but there are also tons of jokes throughout the other parts of the movie that made me laugh out loud that could also be mentioned here.
0: Yeah. A couple standouts for me, I've mentioned that scene at the diner um, a lot, but I think there are a lot of really funny moments in that, you know, their reactions to what's going on inside this whole recurring bit about how was it, was it an animal? Was it several wild animals? I thought that was really funny. And then the the part where Adam Driver pulling up in a smart car obviously is funny. And then when Bill Murray tells Chloe 70 to go do crowd control, right? Because there's like three people standing outside the diner. Um, that made me crack up as well. Uh, so I really, scene-wise, that was my favorite. And then one small moment of cinematography, which I really liked in the movie, in that car scene towards the end with Bill Murray and Adam Driver as the zombies are jumping all over the car and like um, smearing themselves in the hood, like the blurry um, image that we see from through the windshield inside the car is just like a streaks of red, white and blue. And I thought that was a really cool shot um, that, of course, gets at uh, the greater critique that this is trying to make about. America, uh, and I thought a clever way to do that using the cinematography.
1: Yeah, I thought one of the things we hadn't talked about in this film is the cinematography, and I think it is uh, really good for the tone. It really sets the tone for the movie.
0: Definitely. All right, Scott, put a score on it.
1: 5.2.
0: Yikes. Uh, Well, even though I don't think this is um, better than some movies that I will put lower on my list, I did enjoy it more than those movies, um, just because I think that the things that it tries to accomplish are really interesting. And for the most part, it does really accomplish them. Uh, So I'm giving it an 8.4. Scott, that should just about do it for our review of the Dead Don't Die. Uh, When we come back, we'll have the latest news items for you as well as some trailer discussion, including the new trailer for Frozen 2. Be right back. back to this episode of Some like it scott scott a few news items as well as some trailer talk to get through before we uh, conclude the today's episode starting out uh with some fast and the furious news right we have uh, a new movie coming out in this franchise here in a couple of months the hobbs and shaw movie but of course we also have the next uh installment in the mainline series uh, fast and the furious nine coming out next year and uh, John Cena has been cast uh, alongside the uh, splendiferous cast that is already on display in these movies. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting um, that we're getting John Cena in a cast full of, you know, well, I mean, I shouldn't say full of, but that, you know, seem like pre- presumably would have Dwayne The Rock Johnson. in it. But I think that this casting, at least my understanding, is kind of confirming that, that we were n- probably not going to see The Rock in fast and furious nine. And so it's particularly interesting now that you're getting a different wrestler into the cast here, John Cena, and it'll (laughs) be interesting to see what kind of role he plays. We've seen him play some more kind of villainous. uh, I put that in air quotes roles more recently in something like, you know, transform the transformers, maybe bumblebee from last year where, you know, he wasn't the villain of the movie, but he wasn't a protagonist either. So it'll be interesting to see what role he'll play. If he'll take on, the villain role for that fast and furious nine movie, or if he'll be integrated the plot into some other way.
0: Yeah, I guess there really is only room for one wrestler in this franchise. Personally, I think the rock has a little bit more charisma than John Cena, but I don't have a ton of experience watching John Cena movies. So maybe this will help me to see him in a new light.
1: I think he's played lots of different roles. So it'll be interesting to see where this one shakes out. Cause I think it's just hard to predict. Cause you know, he was in something like blockers last year, but he was also in Bumblebee. So
0: you, he yeah. has a, Indeed. Uh, okay, Scott. Some news out of E3 this week. Uh, Netflix will be partnering with Ubisoft to adapt Tom Clancy's The Division uh, into a film, and this is something that has been rumored for a while, I believe. And it has also been rumored uh, that Jake Gyllenhaal and Jessica Chastain would be part of the cast, and all of that was confirmed this week.
1: You know, I'm not someone who's played The Division uh, that game, and it's kind of a it's a shared world shooter, kind of like a Destiny. So it's not something that I uh, am attracted to that I've gotten into. There isn't a real plot to the games, right? Like there's, what I mean by that is like there is lore, like we understand that something has happened in this world, that there are these, this sort of like a kind of somewhat apocalyptic event that has created these dark zones throughout some different cities. You know, in the first game, it was New York. In the second game, it was Washington, D.C. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with this world that's been created by Tom Clancy's The Division and where they go with it. For me, it's one of those question marks where like if you if you detach the names of Jake Gyllenhaal and Jessica Chastain, I don't find this that interesting. But then you have Jake Gyllenhaal and Jessica Chastain who are going to be a part of this movie, at least in some way. Like I presume it means they're going to be acting in it, not producing it. But that's fascinating to me because, you know, without these two names attached, well, I should say without Jake Gyllenhaal for me, his name attached to this movie, I wouldn't be interested really in this at all. So I'm very curious with his name attached what this film is going to be about.
0: Yeah. I mean, here's yet another video game based movie that is maybe giving us some hope that uh, it will be the one to rescue this genre from uh, the dungeon that it uh, has been trapped in for so long. But uh, I guess we'll have to see, you know, where this goes considering, um, you know, what you've said about the plotlessness of the game, perhaps, you know, maybe, I mean, I'm assuming we're going to see an original story here for this, which, um, doesn't always go down smoothly in these video game movies, as we've seen. But uh, good names attached regardless.
1: For sure. But, I mean, that being said, I'm sure we would have say, said the same about Michael Fassbender being attached to Assassin's Creed. And that didn't end so well. Yeah, Alicia
0: Vikander attached to Tomb Raider. I mean, yeah. So speaking of some other good names attached, uh, Scott, Clint Eastwood. We got some news on Clint Eastwood's uh, the new movie, The Ballad of Richard Jewell. Um, Which is, of course, the story of the security guard who was wrongfully accused for a few days of being the uh, bomber at the nineteen ninety eight Atlanta or nineteen ninety six Atlanta Olympics. Um, And we learned first this week that Sam Rockwell is going to be cast as the defense attorney. And then Scott, as if they were reading my mind, because I told you that I wanted this person to be cast as Richard Jewell. um, One day later uh, came the news that Paul Walter Hauser of uh, i Tanya fame of course uh, and black klansman fame uh, has been cast in the lead role as richard Jewell. how excited are you for this scott
1: i mean paul alter hauser i can't we covered i Tanya on the podcast so people will know that i was a huge fan of his performance in i Tanya. uh we didn't he didn't really come up that much in our black klansman discussion we really focused i think elsewhere in the film for that but i think this is a good bit of casting i'm particularly excited about sam rockwell i think we were I mean, I shouldn't say we were all, but the two of us were probably underwhelmed by his George Bush uh, role in Vice last year. And so to see him in something, uh, again, that's probably going to get a lot of eyes on it that might be, you know, in the Oscar conversation. uh, I I think that I'm really excited about because this is the kind of performance, you know, especially being directed with a director like Clint Eastwood, that is going to get a lot of attention. It's going to be an opportunity for Sam Rockwell to get back in that you know, best actor or best supporting actor conversation that he's been in several times, of course, winning for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. And so from that sense, this is something that has really caught my attention. I think that I was maybe so so about it in the initial announcement. I'm like, okay, cool. This is an interesting story. It'll be interesting to see what they do with it. But they're making the right decisions around casting. And so when this movie does roll around, I presume it'll be, you know, probably Oscar season 20, you know, 2020 next year. I don't know if it has released it yet or not, but I, I think it'll be one definitely to keep our eyes on and definitely to watch.
0: Yeah. I always get excited about, um, Sam Rockwell in anything that he's in nowadays, He really has established himself pretty high on my list of, uh, you know, most watchable actors in the biz right now. So of course I'm excited about him playing a defense attorney, right? Like where some possibility of some courtroom drama action, which you know, I'm about, um, and then Paul Walter Hauser, yeah, I mean, I told you the night before that he should be cast. I think he has the look, I mean, spot on already of Richard Jewell. Like, go compare the pictures of of him to uh, Richard Jewell, uh, and it's kind of uncanny. Uh, but we will get to see him sort of in a uh, dramatic, straight-up dramatic role, I would presume, for the first time. Because even though, you know, Black Klansman and, Black Klansman and I, Tonya were mostly dramas, he did get more comedic roles in both of uh, those movies. So we'll probably have to see a different side of him. But based on the performances that we've seen in those movies, I'm very confident in what he can do here.
1: Agreed. I'm on board for it.
0: All right, Scott, one of our most anticipated movies of next year is without a doubt, Denny Villeneuve's Dune adaptation. Uh, but we learned this past week that uh, the film adaptation is not where Denny Villeneuve is stopping because we're also going to have a TV series series um, that has been ordered by Warner Media. Villeneuve will direct the first episode and produce the rest of the series, uh, is what I understand. And, yeah, Scott, uh, I think this really just makes sense because there are so many Dune stories, right? Like, obviously, the the first book, I presume, will be what is adapted into the film, but uh, Frank Herbert really created a whole sci-fi universe with Dune. So there are a lot of stories to be told, and it makes sense that the film isn't where they're stopping here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this I think there's two things here and this smacks of maybe a little bit of arrogance from Warner Media to go ahead and green light a TV show when they don't yet know what the final product is going to look like. That being said, you know, I mean, you can say that this this is is a bit of a reminder of something like Power Rangers, where they talked about how many movies they were going to make. But then the you know, the the one movie comes out, it doesn't do that well. And they you know, I mean, who knows whether we're going to even ever get a follow up. To that 2017 Power Rangers movie. And and so, you know, you could say the same about the, the Universal Monsters as well, with you know, with you know Tom Cruise's the mummy and then scrapping so many plans. So I hesitate because they we've seen this go wrong when they when some studios before have put the cart before the horse, so to speak. But you're absolutely right. I mean, this universe is so expansive. There are so many stories, there are so many books outside of that first book that kind of started it all. And it'll be interesting to see how much of that first book of the story of this universe that the movie proper actually deals with, because even that first book, there's so much there. It's going to be so hard to cover in a single film. I mean, we don't know how long this first film is going to be, but will it even get through that whole first book? We don't, we don't know yet. I think that we have a lot still to learn and, but if it's something good and, you know, regardless of how much of that story it adapts, if people like the tone, if people like what, you know, Denny Villeneuve is doing with it, Um, Of course, it has an amazing cast. We've covered it in great detail who all is part of that cast. I think that then people will be interested in this TV show. And so I understand why WarnerMedia is trying to, you know, get ahead of that interest and have something, you know, maybe ready to drop a couple months after the movie comes out in TV form, right? Not that Blade Runner 2049 totally bombed at the box office, but it didn't make its money back, right? And, you know, as awesome as I thought that movie was, and as awesome as you finally watched it, you thought that movie was... I think that it's it might be hard to, to bet on this movie being as successful as uh, to warrant a TV show follow-up, you know?
0: Yeah, and you know, I don't know that we're at the point where Villeneuve gets like a blank check for this type of stuff, but I think that we're getting close to there, even if maybe these movies aren't drawing the box office um, numbers that perhaps they intend. Every one of his movies has been very well reviewed, and I think the people who go and see these movies they're not just seeing them once right they are sticking with them re-watching them multiple times and Villeneuve is becoming one of their favorite directors yeah I mean these aren't just movies that you watch one time and think oh that was a really good movie and then you just kind of move on with your life no you're re-watching these movies uh you know the, the people who uh watch these movies they are some of their favorite movies of the last decade um so I think he's gonna he has a following even if it's not like massive Uh, And so I think that's maybe one of the reasons why Warner is a little less hesitant to, you know, write him a blank check, quote unquote, for this TV series.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point, actually. And to that extent, maybe then the TV show format is exactly what people will find more attractive. You know, I'd imagine Mm -hmm. there are probably a couple elements that went into something like Blade Runner 2049 underperforming at the box office. One, it's length and two, it's just a part of a property that. I think people were very, like, not necessarily looking for a sequel, right? Like, the fanboys were looking for a sequel, of course. People who are huge fans of the original were looking for it. But was the average, you know, moviegoer excited about paying 15 to $20 to go see this follow-up of a movie that is a cult classic, but not universally well-liked, necessarily? And so something like a TV show where, you know, you already have, you know, the the TV network subscription that you might have that you can pop on and watch or you can watch it on demand – That might be a format where something like this could be really successful, especially if the movie does perform well. So I think that's a good point that you're making.
0: Yeah. All right, Scott. Uh, More director news. Uh, Jame Khale Serra, director of Orphan, The Shallows, to name a few. has been confirmed uh, this past week. Another another piece of news that has been rumored for a while, but he has been confirmed now uh, that he's going to be directing the Black Adam uh, origin story for DC comics and that uh, Dwayne, the rock Johnson will be cast in the lead role.
1: Yeah. I think this is one of those things that we've heard so much about for so long, particularly I should say uh, the rock being black lightning. I mean, he's talked about wanting to be a part of this for a while, I think my thing, I mean, from a director perspective, great. I think that this is a good fit. It'll be really interesting to see what they come up with. I just think that maybe DC hasn't done the best job and Warner brothers, I guess we should say, hasn't done the best job in keeping this movie and this spinoff. Cause this is directly related to Shazam. Like this is an anti-hero or, and some, I mean, sometimes villain in that Shazam comic book line. I don't know if DC did a good job of connecting these two things because you know, maybe you and I were somewhat lukewarm. I mean, you more so than I, lukewarm about Shazam. I think it still was quite successful for what it was at the box office. So I think that maybe DC missed a beat, not dropping a post-credit scene in the form of this. I mean, they they had two after all, I believe. One of them, of course, was pure fan service and a Superman cameo, which was cool, but also kind of pointless since it didn't actually even prove that Henry Cavill was going to stay in the DCEU. But I think it would have been smart to introduce that character there to connect these two things because you're going to get people to go see this movie because it's The Rock. But I think you could have also grabbed people's attention by having this at the end of Shazam for those people who you know, cool, they like The Rock, whatever. They don't necessarily go to movies just to see The Rock, but who really liked the superhero movies and really liked Shazam and the tone that that movie set that was quite different from what other movies might have been setting in the DCEU. So maybe just missed a beat there in my mind, but ultimately this movie will probably still do great because it's The Rock, because he wants to do this uh, property and DC seems to be on a better track now than they have been in previous years with making their universe of movies.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my comment that I think, you know, we talked about how With Aquaman, they were kind of at a crossroads of, you know, do they continue this version of the DCEU? And I think with how well Aquaman did, I mean, it absolutely crushed at the box office. Uh, I think that with projects like this being announced, um, what we're seeing is that there is some life still left, or at least DC feels like there's still some life left in their current extended universe, and they're going to give it some more time. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily agree with them, but like you said, as long as the movies are doing well commercially, which the last two movies have done really well, um, then I don't see a reason why they should um, move away from it, I guess from their business. All right. Last bit of news uh, before we get to some trailers, Scott, this is a, a piece of news that I am much more excited about than you. I imagine Blumhouse has announced that actually Christmas this year, Christmas, 2019, um, we're going to be treated to a remake of the horror classic Black Christmas. Of course, the original uh, from 1974, known as the original slasher movie, right? This is this is considered to be the first slasher movie up there with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, there was a remake in 2006, but this is a new remake, and it is going to be helmed by Sophia Tikal. Scott, I don't know if you saw her last movie, um, Always Shine, Uh, But I was actually a really big fan of that movie. It was a really cool little indie thriller that I think not a lot of people saw with uh, Mackenzie Davis and Caitlin Fitzgerald. Uh, Really good movie. Uh, And I've been waiting for a new project for her. So to hear that it is a horror release, a horror remake of a horror classic obviously gets me excited. And I think that this movie could could end up doing really well in a Christmas release, which is not, of course, when we see a lot of horror movies coming out.
1: Yeah, it'll be a really interesting bit of counter-programming out there. And I think knowing Blumhouse, it's going to be on a tight budget, but done well. And they're going to make a lot of money on this, I'm willing to bet. I I have nothing but faith in Blumhouse producing something good. Now, whether it's great might be another question, but they're pretty much hitting the benchmark of good on almost everything that they produce over there. And so I'm excited for someone like you. Maybe I'll see it. Maybe I won't. We'll see how crowded that Christmas time is, how much I feel like I need to catch up on right before we hit our end of year discussions. But, you know, for those of people who are hungry for a little piece of horror at that time of year and are, you know, getting a remake of a, of a classic, of a really important landmark film in the genre, you're probably going to get a remake that's done pretty well. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe I'm just trying to predict too much there and giving them too much credit before the movie's actually done. But it feels like, this is a good play from Blumhouse.
0: Yeah, and you know my understanding is that Black Christmas is a pretty nuts and bolts. Like I even think the whole movie might be set in like a sorority house, so probably not something that you need a super big budget for. So it makes sense that Blumhouse is is uh, helming this. But yeah, will be really interesting. Uh, all right, Scott, let's get into some trailers. The biggest trailer of the week was the first official trailer. We had a teaser earlier for this movie, but this is the first official trailer for. Frozen 2, the uh, Pixar sequel that will be dropping, or Disney animation sequel that will be dropping uh, in December, I believe.
1: It's actually coming out in November. But November. yes, right. no, Frozen 2, I'm really excited about this. We were talking about how it looks great. I mean, may- maybe I was just saying that it looks great. I think it looks great. I think it's it, the trailer is beautiful. I'm really liking the tone of the film And it really kind of taking a bit of a it seems like taking a bit of a darker turn than maybe we're used to, maybe than what we're used to seeing from Disney and Pixar. But I'm really into it and I'm really excited to, you know, guilty admission to make here on the podcast. But I, you know, haven't seen that first Frozen movie. I'm really excited to go watch that um, and then see this film when it does come out in November. And we're just having a great year for animated film. I mean, we've had some great ones already. And of course, Toy Story coming up next week. Frozen coming out later this year, and a few others I'm, I'm sure will be sprinkled in here and there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen the first movie either, and I think that's maybe why I'm a little tempered in my excitement for this just because you know I want to know what I'm getting myself into here. Um, if I don't like the first movie, you know I naturally am probably not going to be as excited about the second movie, but I mean it is a good trailer. The music uh, complements it really well. It definitely has that magical Disney feel to it and I like I do like the darker turn. that's something that I picked up on as well um with whatever sort of the villainous like monster beast thing or whatever is going to be in this um could be interesting so we'll have to see speaking of things taking a darker turn scott uh we got the first trailer this week for the uh, new stephen king adaptation dr sleep uh this of course is taking place in the shining universe that has been confirmed uh by the director of the movie uh who i can't remember who it is but um We'll be getting this movie also uh, in the last quarter of this year, Scott. And uh, it stars Ewan McGregor, among others. Uh, what was your reaction to this trailer?
1: I mean, I'm I'm a big Ewan McGregor fan. Maybe not everything that he's done has always really nailed it for me. But I mean, if you're into The Shining, but if you like that universe, if you're excited to get a follow up, Mike Flanagan, who's the director of that, by the way, you know, he's he is adapting Stephen King's version Uh, His sequel, because I think this is a book that that Stephen King wrote kind of earlier this decade as a follow up to his book. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see if this follows the story of the book that Stephen King wrote or if it tries to more directly follow and build off of the arc that Stanley Kubrick created in his adaptation of the book, which, you know, I, I believe Stephen King isn't a fan of, uh, but it'll be interesting to see which direction it goes. Cause apparently the script, the screenplay was also done by Mike Flanagan. He got approval both from Stanley Kubrick's estate and Stephen King to move forward with this, with this particular adaptation with this screenplay. So that makes me believe that it's more in line with the book and less in line with the original movie, because I don't know how much Stanley Kubrick's estate cares about whether or not this film adaptation follows the continuity of, that was created in that particular film, which I'll admit I'm not particularly familiar with. I haven't seen The Shining, but I thought that was an interesting tidbit that came along with this news. And for me, again, I'm not sure that I'll see it unless we cover it on the podcast, but I'm sure this is something that is getting people really excited. I know that you were pretty excited about it. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts are.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do enjoy The Shining. Um, I've only seen it one time, I think, but it's a classic for a reason, right? It's an extremely well-made film. Stanley Kubrick did a great job. Incredibly memorable performance by Jack Nicholson. I think it will be interesting to see, you know, where the story goes outside the context of um, the Overlook Hotel, where you know that first movie is pretty much completely set. You know, wh- where how exactly this fits into the universe. But yeah, I did see. I think uh, even further than what you're saying, I saw Stephen King. put tweeted this trailer out and said, you know. If uh, if you still have any mind left to, of your mind left to be blown after it chapter two, this movie's going to blow your mind. So it seems like he's fully behind it. Um, and you know, obviously, that's something that gets me excited. I mean, we already had one Stephen King uh, adaptation this year, of Pet Cemetery, that I was uh, a fan of. So yeah, looking forward to this.
1: Yeah, I think it'll it'll be interesting. You know, you talk about Jack Nicholson's performance in that in that original movie. I believe this is supposed to be his son, right? Ewan McGregor's character is supposed to be his son
0: yeah I think so
1: well it'll be interesting I I hope that you know when you when you do see it because it sounds like you almost certainly will I hope that it's really
0: good yeah not the first time Ewan McGregor has followed in the footsteps of giants but I you know I'm I may be in the minority of thinking that his Obi-Wan is pretty good so hopefully his uh Torrance I'm not sure what the first name of this character is but, Danny uh, will we'll be good here too Danny Torrance um Danny Torrance all right yeah Okay, Scott, last trailer, um, and one that I got really excited about, uh, is this movie called Official Secrets, which I hadn't really heard about um, until uh, just this week when this trailer came out. I think it's coming out later this year, but this is a a journalism thriller directed by Gavin Hood. Um, Kind of looks like, I think I saw somebody, maybe Jeff Snyder, compared to like a British spotlight, and I think that's kind of on point, focusing more on the Iraq War and the uh, relationship between the U.S. and the U.K., um, and the, the events leading up to the uh, both of these world powers entering the war against Iraq and war in, war in Afghanistan, starring Keira Knightley and a couple other names as well, um, who I can't remember at the moment. But I'm a huge fan of these journalism-type thrillers. Um, Scott, you know, I lo- I'm i obsessed with both Spotlight and Zodiac, which I think you could both um, put in those categories. And then All the President's Men, one of my favorite movies of all time. So um, I'm, I'm a sucker for these kind of kinds of movies, and I think this one looks pretty good.
1: Yeah, The Post didn't do it for you though, did it?
0: Uh, No, The Post was just a little dry.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Yeah, no, this film looks super interesting. I think that this sort of, I would say that I'm a fan of a a slightly different genre than what you described, and I think that this falls into both comfortably, right? But this is a sort of political thriller, right? You know, I really enjoy, have enjoyed other movies, maybe not from the journalistic aspect, but from the more spy aspect of this, something like Enemy of the state, or even what's what's DiCaprio. Have you
0: ever watched The Ghost Rider? I haven't seen that actually. You and McGregor movie. It's really good. Yeah.
1: Actually. I've oh yeah, no, that is right. I've heard of that. I haven't seen it though. But also Body of Lies.
0: Is that the DiCaprio? I was
1: about to say that one. Yeah. Body of Lies, I'm a big fan of, but that might be my DiCaprio bias. Who knows? But the point is that I'm also a fan of this as well. So really on board for what this turns out to be. I mean, it's already showed this year, it showed at Sundance. I, don't, I didn't go and look at what the reactions were, but we are going to be getting this later this year. We're going to be getting it in August, I believe, late August. We'll see how wide that release is, of course, but that's when it's slated currently. But for me, Kira Knightley looks great. It looks like a slightly different kind of role than what we normally see her in. But we also have a great cast to fill the rest of this out. We have Matt Smith, who's maybe more famous for his Doctor Who character than anything that we've seen on the big screen. But we also have Ray Fiennes, who, you know, he, he is a legend at this point. I think it's fair to say. Uh, so really looking forward to this one later this year and just hoping that it uh, it gets a wide enough release to, to reach me.
0: Yeah, definitely. Great cast. And the only thing I'm slightly trepidatious about is it's definitely going to have a political spin on it. Uh, it looks like it's definitely going to have a civil, similar opinion that um, Adam McKay had with Vice. Uh, I just hope that the execution of uh, this vision is a lot more even handed and less obnoxious than what Adam McKay did. It would be hard to be more obnoxious than what Adam McKay did with that movie. But um, you know, that'll be something to watch out for. For sure. All right, Scott. Well, that should just about do it for this week's episode. You know, usually at the end of these episodes, uh, you ask me uh, if I have anything else to add. And last week I joked about how I never really have anything much to add anymore, but I realized last week what I should have said. And what I want to say now is that, uh, if you haven't watched When They See Us on Netflix yet, the new Ava DuVernay four part series about the Central Park Five, please go and watch it. It is one of the best things that Netflix has produced um, in terms of original content. Uh, and it tells a very important story um, that is very relevant uh, today, even though it happened, you know, 30 something years ago. Um, and it's just a, a terrific uh, production all around. So please go and watch that. We don't get enough opportunities to talk about uh, original TV like that. But it's only four episodes, so it's a quick watch.
1: Yeah, see, I haven't watched it yet, but it's on the top of my list for sure. I definitely want to see it. I'm someone who took psychology and law in college and wrote my thesis on something tangential to that in psychology and law. So I'm really Mm -hmm. interested to, you know, flip this on on Netflix, see what Aver DuVernay has put together here because as, as much as I wasn't a fan of Wrinkle in Time last year I mean documentaries that she's done like 13th uh, and even the dramatized of course biopic of uh, Selma that that I think that's where she's really thrived as a director and so this is this feels to me right in her wheelhouse where she's a proven real heavyweight and, and one of the best out there for directing and as much as I still would like to see her expand beyond that I, I really can't wait to, to see this
0: yeah, no, I think you're going to really enjoy it when you watch it. Um, it's, like I said, it's a great production all around. But I digress. Scott, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter?
1: At shelton2013.
0: And you can find me at Scarby Dent. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Something Like It, Scott. You have and you'd like to support the show. Please don't forget about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Uh, but if you choose not to support our Patreon, that is okay, too. We would still love it if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode on which we'll be reviewing Toy Story 4. For now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, we'll see you next
1: time. Thanks for listening.